Paper as a material first appeared around 2,000 years ago in China. The earliest paper sheets were probably made from mulberry bark, rags and hemp. The secret of paper making travelled to North Africa and Western Asia in the 8th century. In the 11th century, paper making finally arrived in Europe via Spain and Sicily. Up until this point, people in Europe used parchment or vellum, which is based on animal skins. Paper made advancements like the printing press possible. Over time, it led to the development of news sheets, pamphlets and all other manner of literature. Of course, one of its big advantages is the fact it's light, portable and recyclable. But its inherent fragility, the fact it can be destroyed through fire or getting wet, surprisingly makes it a material of choice in some folk magic. Add this fragility to the fact you can inscribe it and reconfigure its shape, it becomes perfect for all manner of spells and charms. And that's what we're going to be having a look at in this week's episode of Fabulous Folklore. Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host, Icy Sedgwick, blogger, fantasy author and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, hello there, and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Dicey Sedgwick. We are wrapping up the Folklore of Materials month. I did actually have another request for a different type of material, which was shells and pearls, but I actually thought that would work quite nicely as part of a sea-based theme instead of materials, so I am going to do that next week, and we're then going, that's going to start a new theme that we'll be having a look at around the sea. But for this particular episode, we're going to be having a look at the Folklore of Paper, And I wasn't entirely sure if I'd be able to find enough stuff, but lo and behold, there's actually lots. So we're going to end with paper, which obviously is one of my favourite things because it comprises books. So there we go. Now, before we get into the episode properly, I just want to drop a quick reminder that you can get additional bonus episodes, storytelling episodes and exclusive articles as a supporter on Patreon. Now, the income that I get from Patreon does help to cover boring stuff like web hosting costs, but it does also cover my time in researching these episodes because, to be honest, just researching and writing the script can take between three and four hours, depending on the topic, and that's not even taking into account recording and editing as well. Now, that's obviously time I can't spend doing billable client work, so Patreon funds do at least go towards covering that time. So this month's bonus episode, if you're interested, has already landed for supporters and it's about three famous legends of vampires in New Orleans. And if you are interested, obviously you can follow the link below and check out the fabulous folklore family. But with all that being said, let's crack on with the folklore of paper. So we're going to start off with looking at paper and love charms because paper is actually baked into our wedding celebrations because paper is the material of choice for the first wedding anniversary. So it does stand to reason that paper would then appear in a range of charms. Now, some of them are a little bit more multi-purpose, but I wanted to start off by looking specifically at the love magic ones. Now, if you are lucky enough to have more than one potential suitor, there's also a superstition to find which is actually the one for you. And what you do is you write the name of each of the three would-be partners on three pieces of paper, put them into a stocking with a piece of wedding cake, and on the next two mornings, pick out one of the slips. And the one that's left on the third morning is the person that you'll marry. Obviously, a lot of these are usually aimed at women looking for men, but I don't see why you can't just use it in general, because people are people, you know what I mean? I do think as well, when they say stocking, obviously, you know, you might have to use your imagination and use like a sock or something, but the general idea is more or less the same. 
And then there's another one that's actually more helpful if you've got more than three potential partners. And if you do, what is your secret? I can't even get one. But what you need to do is write the names on separate like slips of paper and then you roll each one in clay and then you drop each of those into a glass of water. And the first one to rise to the top will be your partner. I can't quite understand how that works in my head. Like I'm imagining that you kind of, you might roll it as like a tube, but because there would need to be some way for air to get in in order for it to then like rise in the glass. So yeah, that one again comes from 1903, as does this one. Now the biodegradable nature of folk magic is what helps this one work. So what you can do is write your partner's name on a piece of paper and then you put that at the bottom of a plant pot, add your soil and so on, and then add an Easter lily bulb. And then how well the lily grows would tell you how faithful your partner is. Now you can also use a very similar idea if you want to draw things to you as well. So if you want to grow more friendship in your life, you could just simply write the word friendship and then put that under a bulb or seeds or whatever. And then as they grow, so friendship should grow in your life. You can obviously do it with things like money and so on as well. And of course, because paper does break down, I think that's one of the reasons why it's quite good to use. Now, there are other paper charms as well. And at one stage, people kept cake charms called Agnes Day to God against the devil. And that just means Lamb of God. Now, pieces of paper inscribed with the Gospel of St. John were baked into a cake. And then you would keep the cake as a protective amulet rather than eating it. And Agnes Day means Lamb of God, like I say. And in this case, it actually referred to a type of devotional object known as a sacramental. And in the early modern period, these sacramental items included objects that had been blessed by the church and then taken home by worshippers to act as protective items in some shape or form. You could also apparently cure toothache using paper and you just simply needed to write the following statement on paper. And it says, Peter sat on a marble stone weeping. Christ came past and said, What aileth thee, Peter? O my Lord, my God, my tooth doth ache. Arise, O Peter, go thy way, thy tooth shall ache no more. And then you would sew that little piece of paper into a piece of clothing and then you would wear that clothing for as long as the paper stayed in one piece and that should essentially take away your toothache. And this protective nature of paper seems to be what helps it appear in these other charms because there's another one where a smuggler and murderer named Jackson died in Chichester Jail in 1749 and apparently they found a paper charm in a linen purse on his body. And it said, Ye three holy kings, Caspar, Melchior, Balthazar, pray for us now and in the hour of our death. And this is essentially a form of relic. So paper relics like this had supposedly touched the heads of the three kings and keeping one was supposed to help keep travellers safe from accidents, fevers or sudden death. If you've got a friend that you really want to see, you can write both your names on a piece of paper in blood, apparently your blood, and then fold the paper into nine and wear it next to your heart for nine days. If you burn it on the ninth day, your absent friend should appear soon. And like I said earlier, be careful when you're using anything to compel another person to do something. And use the basic logic, would you want someone to compel you to do something? No? Well then don't do it with someone else. And interestingly, even a paper cut had symbolism and could prove to be an omen because it meant that you would have an unexpected surprise and a strange bed. It also just really hurts as well, but that's a side issue. Now obviously we can't talk about paper and not actually talk about paper money, which is a a really interesting idea in and of itself because when you think about original metal coins you are actually possessing small amounts of those metals which is why the coins had a value and obviously that's why people used to nick bits off them in order to essentially sort of steal money from the from the royal mint but paper notes are a little bit different because they're essentially a promise to pay that amount of money 
they're not actually the money itself. So I've just checked on a £10 note and it says, I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of £10. So they're essentially promises, not the actual amount of money itself, if that makes sense. And that that means that the paper simply represents a value rather than holding the value itself. So it is hardly surprising, bearing that in mind, that paper money can then represent prosperity in how you handle it. So this book from 1903 recommended that you should fold your banknotes lengthwise to ensure you'll always have money. You shouldn't cram paper money into your wallet at random or you would lose prosperity. And if you kept the notes smoothed out, it meant you'd never be rich. So obviously it is a little bit more difficult to fold the new plasticky notes, but try and bear that in mind next time you're putting your money into your wallet. Now, I figured that we couldn't talk about the folklore of paper and not mention books. And I know that obviously we can read them in digital formats now, but books have been made from paper far longer than they've been made from binary code. And I've got a whole selection of superstitions and they all date again to the very early 20th century and come from this book from 1903. So if you dropped a book, it meant you'd seen a ghost. But that said, dropping a book while reading it meant somebody was thinking well of you. Reading a book twice brought bad luck. And keeping almanacs for more than two years also brought bad luck. If a young man handed a book to a young woman, she'd be happy shortly. Well, of course she would. She'd have a book. But turning a book or newspaper upside down by accident brought bad luck. Unless you'd finished reading the book, in which case turning it upside down brought good luck. A book falling from a bookcase meant company was on its way. And if somebody took a book from you while you were reading it, you would get a visitor within the hour. If you put a book away upside down, it meant that you would forget its contents right at the point that you needed it. And if you're looking for a particular page of a book and you open the book and you're already at the page that you're looking for, then that'll give you good luck. And you shouldn't give books with red covers as gifts as that would break the friendship. So bear that in mind next time you're shopping on Amazon. But then we also have the really fun practice of bibliomancy. And this is basically divination by book. Now, at one time, people would hold an intentional ceremony before breakfast on New Year's Day. They would then open the Bible at random and read a passage as a prediction for the coming year. And in 1850s Oxfordshire, this practice was known as dipping because you were dipping into the Bible. But you had to do it before noon on January the 1st for it to actually you know, to have any kind of impact. But thankfully, you can actually use any book for bibliomancy. And I've actually seen it described two different ways. Because in one version, you browse through your books until you're drawn to one and then you use that one for the practice. But then in the other version, you actually just choose the book in advance and away you go. And I think the problem with that one is you can then sort of guide the kind of answer that you might get based on the kind of book that it is. But what you essentially do is you ask your question and then open the book at random. And the, the answer is essentially the first passage that your eyes alight upon. Now, me being me, I obviously had to give this a go, you know, in the interest of science. And I actually tried it using Philip Cargom and Richard Haygate's The Book of English Magic, because that was the book that I had downstairs at the time. And I just simply asked a more general question, what do I need to know today? And I opened the book at a picture of an alchemical laboratory. So it seems that transmutation and transformation are important concepts for me today. Now, of course, obviously, we've been talking about folklore in sort of a more magical sense, I think in this particular episode but folklore isn't restricted to the likes of folk magic and superstition because folklore also emerges through the ways that people actually collect and disseminate beliefs and stories and broadsides became a particularly popular way to do this. Now these were incredibly flimsy and they were often single sheets of paper and one of their main attractions was they were really really cheap 
and they might contain the lyrics to popular folk ballads, they might have news stories about crimes and scandals, they'd usually have illustrations of some description, they might have political diatribes, and basically anything that the publishers felt people might actually pay for. Now, one really popular form of content was the dying speech, which was a monologue apparently dictated by a condemned prisoner and then sold at their execution. Bear in mind that these had usually been made up by someone the day before in order for them to have been printed and ready to sell at the execution. So it was actually really unlikely that the monologue that you were reading actually came from the dying man. But by the mid-19th century, broadsides might be around 8 by 10 inches. They usually featured two illustrations and two songs. And the 19th century broadsides were a lot more accessible than their 17th century counterparts because their content was often a little bit more vulgar, shall we say, or salacious, whereas writers in the 17th century might even conduct debates through the letters printed in the sheets. But it's the broadside ballad that's probably the most useful to a folklorist, because obviously it's difficult to actually find broadsides, because they're essentially intended as ephemera, they're not supposed to last forever, so a lot of them obviously have been lost just to time and so on. But the broadsides that do still survive can help folklorists to date folk songs or trace variations. And then you can try and work out, well, why has that variation come out there and what does that mean to that area and so on. Now, so this does basically make these broadsides that do survive really useful to anyone who's studying the songs of a given period or location. So the broadsides basically captured in print what would have otherwise been an oral tradition. And while people would have learned the melody of the song from those selling the broadsides, the sheets at least preserve the lyrics. And I love that idea that the person selling them would essentially be singing the song and then selling the the, the lyrics so that people could then learn them and, and sing the song themselves. So what do we actually make of the folklore of paper? Well, I think the way that the broadsides preserve folk songs is a key to the importance of paper because it does help us to preserve ideas in a relatively inexpensive way. Now, obviously, I'm talking about this from a 21st century perspective, where paper, compared to other materials, really isn't that expensive, and it is far cheaper for me to go and buy a notebook for, like, 80p in Tesco than it is for me to, like, buy a new laptop or something like that. So you can then write down a thought and find it again later. And obviously, you can write on things that weren't necessarily intended for that. Now, I'm a big fan of writing on envelopes. If I just need a piece of paper to write down a note, it just gets written on any scrap of paper. And that, I think, is one of the beautiful things about paper. It has that preservation quality almost built into it. It is obviously also thin enough and light enough to then carry it around as an unobtrusive charm. And if you just simply had a piece of paper in your pocket, nobody's going to look twice at that because it's not a weird thing to be carrying. So it is quite useful in a way that you can then carry these things. And obviously they're quite small. You can slip them into your wallet. You can Some people put them in their shoe, whatever. It just makes it easy for you to then engage with that in a way that people won't notice. And obviously look at the toothache repelling charm. That would be a really easy thing for somebody to do themselves as long as they were literate and they had paper. Obviously far better than pulling your own teeth and so on. So again, it's that thing where it makes using charms and amulets a little bit more accessible. But paper is obviously also fragile and it will break down in water. It will eventually break down and rot if you put it in earth. You can burn it, which will turn it into ashes. All of these qualities make paper ideal for charms, especially when you want to release something. So you can either write what you want to receive on paper and burn it, and then that will let the smoke carry your wishes to the gods. Obviously, please practice fire safety. 
or you can write what you don't want on paper and then burn that and then the burning symbolically destroys the thing that you don't want which some people believe then cuts energetic ties to it but because there's so many uses paper really becomes this kind of multifunctional item that appears throughout folklore almost as like a background element rather than it necessarily being foregrounded in quite the same way I think as like iron is for example or things like hagstones and so on paper does have a slightly more everyday quality to it than I think some of these other materials don't have so I hope that you've enjoyed that theme of the folklore of materials. Like I say, next month we're going to go into looking at the folklore of things to do with the sea so that I can then can also include that episode about the folklore of like shells and pearls and things since that was a request. And I do like to try and do requests where possible. Sometimes requests are a little bit more difficult for me to, to figure out and sometimes I just kind of have to move them to later on. So someone else asked for the legends around like royalty associated with witchcraft like Elizabeth Woodville. I will absolutely do that but probably in the new year now, just because of the amount of research required. I am slowly making my way through the requests where possible. Bearing in mind the fact I have said we'll do the C for the next theme, please don't request Selkies. Somebody already has, and I do already have an episode on Selkies, so I am going to, like I say, try and work out a way to get the website a little bit more user-friendly so that you can actually find these episodes anyway. But like I say, we will have a look at the C starting next week so i hope you enjoy that i hope you have a lovely rest of august what's left of it and i'll see you next week when we have a look at the folklore of shells and pearls cheerio well thanks for listening and i hope you enjoyed that episode if you did feel free to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts because that helps other people find the show too it also takes between four and six hours to research write record and edit these episodes so if you want to help support my time in doing that, then you can buy me a coffee. Or you can join the Fabulous Folklore family on Patreon and enjoy extra benefits, including exclusive episodes and articles and even illustrated talks. All the links you need are below and thanks in advance. <laughs>